I'm Will Howell, and this is Just Another Politics Podcast. With all that's happening in the world, we thought it would make sense to pause and try to take stock of the state of our democracy, to reflect upon threats to our democracy and what a solution or a corrective to those threats might look like. And so this past week, Anthony and I joined in conversation with our colleague, James Robinson. James is the director of the Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts here at the Harris School of Public Policy. He is a university professor at the University of Chicago. He is the author with Daron Asimoglu most recently of The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and The Fate of Liberty. But he's also written with Daron a widely renowned book called Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty, and another book entitled Economic Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy. And you can hear just in the titles alone the deep kind of investments James has made into the study of democracy. And he's able to put our current condition here in the United States into comparative perspective. And as you'll see in the conversation that we had with him last week, he draws all kinds of useful insights into what's happening here by reference to trends and developments in Latin America and in Africa. Let's give a listen to the to the conversation that happened last week. In the aftermath of a day that began with Trump, well, setting off. A goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. He got behind the microphone and touted his policy achievements, claimed that he had laid the groundwork for Biden's success and beckoned us not to forget him when those successes became a reality. Then our attention, our collective attention, turned to, well, the inauguration ceremony itself. This ceremony is the culmination of 244 years of a democracy looked very different from previous inaugurations. There were not hundreds of thousands of people gathered. There were hundreds of people gathered amidst a strong police presence. Biden then beckoned us to reclaim some notion of unity. To overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and secure the future of America, requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy, unity to reimagine our democracy, recommit ourselves to a national project of coming together. It was quite a day. I wonder, James and Anthony, what, what you were struck by the, the most in the day. What, what did you think was sort of like, that was something to notice and remember? Uh, should I go? James, you yeah. said James. Go. James, yeah. tell I, us what you're so, thinking. Well, I, I, you know, what I appreciated is the ritual, like the gravitas, you know, we've had four years of sort of bombast, and, you know, flouting of precedent and procedure and institutions. So just having something with gravitas and kind of seriousness, I think there's a lot that needs to be repaired. And probably we forget how important such simple things, you know, doing such simple things collectively are actually very important for underpinning the institutions that make things work so well as they do in this country. So that, that's what, for me, that was the big takeaway that I, I appreciated. I agree with that. I think that's a. I think that's a good sign. What stands out most? Uh, Jennifer Lopez is still as talented as ever. That was. Uh, that was. That was great to see. Uh, and you know, and and in some sense, these these kinds of things are a little bit silly. There's a, it's 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 all pageantry. 
But at the same time, I agree with James that that these kinds of symbolic things are important. It was important to see Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, people like that there in support of Joe Biden and lending legitimacy to this next presidency. It would have been even better if Donald Trump had been there as well. Yeah, if I could add to the list, I mean, I agree with all that. Is I mean, the, the star that emerged from yesterday was a 22-year-old Black poet who we'd never heard of before, and now we have heard of Amanda Gorman. I guess what I appreciated from that fact is that in addition to having a new president, we have a president who throughout that day made a point of speaking to the broader country and to cede space for other people to step into, to shift away from the greatness and glory that is all things Donald Trump to a recognition of talent and possibility and diversity. I don't know. I it spoke well of the incoming president. It also spoke to the to a chance for something that approximates renewal in, in, in moving forward. But, but before we turn to that, we should look back and think a little bit about what is Biden inheriting and pointing to and characterizing the events of January 6th. It is hard to put into words what exactly we witnessed today because we have not seen this before. Thousands storming the Capitol after a rally with President Trump, during which he urged them to march on the Capitol. But how that also speaks to much larger things. When you guys think about sort of the state of our democracy and not just the vulnerabilities that have been revealed, but maybe the, I guess what I would say, the, the harms that have been done to it over the last four years. James, what do you see? How would you characterize it? You know, for me, the most important thing is, you know, you see that there's much less commitment within the political class to the institutions of democracy in this country. It's not just Trump. You know, it's, it's enormous numbers of people in the Republican political elite are quite happy to see democracy overthrown, it turns out. As Trump has deinstitutionalized the state, he's done all sorts of illegal things, and everyone has sat on their hands in the Republican Party. So I think, I think what you see is that actually people are much less committed to the institutions in this country than I would have thought four or five years ago. Anthony, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I share James' concerns. I think, you know, these kinds of concerns have been around even before Trump hyper-partisan concerns and anti-democratic concerns. If you, some of you probably remember that Mitch McConnell stated when Barack Obama was elected in 2008 that his number one goal... Our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. Uh, it was a shocking statement coming from a congressional leader to say, my number one goal is not to make good policy, but just to harm the other party, essentially. So these kinds of concerns have been relevant for a long time. But at the same time, I think you can take some solace in the fact that we had a president and lots of and lots of other elites as well who didn't care very much about democratic institutions, actively tried to undermine those democratic institutions, and yet they seemed to survive that challenge reasonably well. Um, so I, throughout the Trump presidency, despite all of the things we've had to be concerned about, we had a president with highly autocratic tendencies who would have been happy to use his power to put all of his political enemies in jail and enrich himself and undermine elections as much as possible. He did to some extent, but I think our democratic institutions came out maybe better than one might have thought, given the extent of the challenge that we had. So in some sense, I do come out being somewhat reassured. It wasn't the case, for example, that Trump was able to get all of these Republican appointed judges to go along with all of his claims of voter fraud, for example. So, you know, not every, not everyone behaved as partisan as you might have expected, and, and the institutions prevailed, and the electoral outcome was the right one, and enough people have honored that, that uh, there's no question about the legitimacy of the Biden administration, which is, which is a good thing. On the other hand, you've got massive levels of disinformation, the kinds of attacks on demo, small-D democratic commitments and on the bureaucracy and on the press 
have done damage and that, you know, the events of January 6th for people who are on the far right is going to be kind of a proof of concept about what can be accomplished, which is going to potentially lead to greater political violence. And in that sense, yes, we can find some comfort that we withstood that onslaught, but our institutions and our democracy itself is diminished or is softened. James, what do you think? I agree with that. Trump is just too self-centered and too disorganized to actually overthrow democracy. I think, you know, if you look at successful attempts to fix elections by incumbents, take Perón. Perón was first elected president of Argentina in 1946. From the beginning, he drew his support from the great mass of underprivileged Argentinians. For many of them, he was an idol the first Argentinian leader who really did something for the common man. You know, Perón was fairly elected, you know, in 1945 in Argentina. And then he had time to pack the juries and pack the Supreme Court and kind of prepare the way. Despite his adulation by the masses, Perón was often a ruthless president, crushing opposition and ruling through the army, the police and the labor unions. And, and it could be, you know, and Anthony's right, that institutions are stronger here, like Trump it's much more difficult to do that here than it is in Argentina or Colombia or wherever. But I don't think he tried very hard either. He just, you know, he wasn't strategic. He didn't have a plan. You know, he didn't prepare properly because he's too interested in parochial things like his real estate business or his golf course or whatever. You know, he's just not serious as an autocrat, it seems to me. That I think is frightening because somebody who's more serious, you know, may make more progress. Do you think that that the challenge presented to that more serious person that you're imagining, that you're inviting us to imagine, has been made easier by virtue of Trump's presidency. Yes, I, I think I think it's softening that it's been revealed that political elites could go along with this and that there's fewer barriers to doing this than one might have thought before. James, can you think about other instances wherein the kinds of attacks that we did see under Trump on our democracy, albeit not as serious and focused and kind of laser-like as you've suggested they could have been. Are there instances where they've played out and what lessons they might afford about what the future of our democracy looks like? You've done just a tremendous amount of work in Africa and or in Latin America or in Europe. What do you what corollaries do you look for? I think the lessons there, you know, would suggest that it's not really a threat. It's the softening up or it's the future that's sort of very concerning. You know, that Trump, you know, he doesn't really have a project. You know, if you to be a, a successful autocrat, you need to have what looks like a project. You could say he has a project like Make America Great Again, but, but all successful autocrats, like take Chavez or Perón or whatever, you know, they deliver President Museveni, you know, who just got himself re-elected again in Uganda. Well, more now from Uganda, where the Election Commission says that Yori Museveni has extended his 35-year rule. They deliver to a core constituency. You find if there's a lack of peace, you are all affected. If you don't have food, you are all affected. Transport. So we said, why don't you emphasize needs of the people? It doesn't have to be half the people in the country. You know, it could be 15% or 20%, but they really deliver. You know, there's people who really, you know, really benefited from Chavez being in power in Venezuela, who really benefited from Peron being in power. And 
I don't know that Trump actually <laughs> delivered to anybody except rich business tycoons by cutting corporate taxes. You know, you know, he wanted to take people's health care away from them. You know, did he really deliver jobs and 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 opportunity? And that's a problem for him, you know, because I think that means the symbolic stuff won't endure. That seems to be missing to me. He also, he seems to have no links to the military. You know, Chavez and Perón were military people before they got into politics. Museveni invaded the country at the head of a rebel army. You know, I think it's very difficult to find examples of successful autocrats who are either not military people, you know, who were unable to kind of really build bridges to the military. Trump didn't do this. You know, he didn't bring generals into the government. He didn't seem to have ways of connecting with the military. And you know, the military could sit on their hands when a coup happens, but you can't sustain yourself in power without the support of the military. And that the pieces for that don't seem to be in place for the US. And that's a very consoling uh, factor also. So I, you know, I think if you look at collapses of democracy, either it's people from the military or you need to have a strong links or a coalition with at least some faction of the military, maybe not all of the military, uh, but some faction of the military. You know, those are the sort of messages I see, which which kind of lead me to think this. This, you know, this there was there wasn't really a serious threat of a coup, but it's 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 the question is what's a transition path? You look at Peron, for example. How was Peron able to do what he did? He was able to do it because it followed you know a fifteen year period of institutional erosion, kind of increasing meddling in the Supreme Court, in political institutions, in and you know and and so so so. It took time to get there. You know, the country had to be kind of in a position. And it was also a period of very rapid socioeconomic change in the 1930s in Argentina, which is also very interesting in the US. Like a lot of very rapid urbanization, a lot of dislocation, big waves of immigration, a lot of things that the political system had to adjust to, but it wasn't capable of doing so. There are lessons that look, boy, you can make some inroads. You can't actually deliver all the fruits of autocracy all at once, but you can make inroads. So there's the learning part, but that there also is, I guess I'd say the the softening is the damage wrought. We don't know how many people think that the election was stolen, but whatever it is, it's way too many. The fact that all, there are significant portions of the American public now, their levels of trust in government have gone down by virtue, not just of Trump's performance, but his entreaties to say, you shouldn't trust government, right? You should, this deep state and the would-be champions of the public are deemed enemies of the people, right? Thinking about the press. And that that has, that has done damage to our democracy too. And in that sense, to the extent that the work of an autocrat is to push back against democracy, their job is made easier by virtue of Trump's presidency. But I, I share I share your concerns completely. But if I, I guess just to play devil's advocate, I think I'm not convinced that that huge numbers of people really, really do distrust the results of the election. You can get lots of people to say partisan sounding fun, fun things in surveys like, do you believe that, you know, Donald Trump is the spawn of Satan or something? Sure, sure, people will say yes to that. But do they actually believe it? Or does it actually spill over into, you know, anything that matters? I think that's an open that's an open question. And there's lots of evidence of that kind of partisan cheerleading in surveys, for example. So, so I'm not sure. There's always some healthy amount of distrust of government and some some healthy criticism anytime there's a, a close election or, you know, you can think of lots of examples, just like the last three times the Democrats lost, there were lots of accusations of wrongdoing and 
and, and you know, accusations that, that the Democrats should have won for various reasons. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president who got illegitimate foreign help. And... That didn't completely undermine democracy, but there were lots of people who were upset. I think some of that is natural and not necessarily a terrible thing, but I do share your concerns that suppose a more effectual, motivated person comes along and says, let's, let's, let's take the lessons we learned from the Trump presidency and figure out how we really could wrangle the government in, in our favor. I think that's a scary thought because, because I, I agree with James that, that Trump wasn't nearly as motivated and maybe nearly as savvy as, as, he, as, he, as, as, as the next potential autocrat will be. One thing that could have impressed me a lot is just the strength in the U.S. state is maybe not where we thought it was. You know, it's this quotidian, it's the people certifying the votes, you know, in Michigan or these people, you know, you've never heard of. And some bipartisan committee with two Repu and the two Republicans and two Democrats, and they kind of do their job and they believe in the system. And I think that's the sort of strength that you don't see in the state in Sierra Leone or Liberia. And, and, and so then it's more difficult to sort of topple the thing at the top because the thing, the thing at the top, you know, in Sierra Leone is already so personalized and so focused on an individual without this kind of individual, you know, institutionalized strength in the state. You know, one can see many things like this elsewhere, you know, in, in, in the world. But in the US, it seems difficult to have that same kind of impact as 25 soldiers capturing the presidential palace in Freetown. You have the same leverage here, you know, capture the radio station and start announcing that I'm Valentine Strasser and I'm now the president of Sierra Leone. Well, somebody could have tried that, you know, on, on Fox News, but I, it's more difficult. Yeah. And it's more difficult. I mean, what we've seen over the last few months because of the principled stand that a set of election administrators have taken in Georgia. Like other Republicans, I'm disappointed our candidate didn't win Georgia's electoral votes. As Secretary of State, I believe that the numbers that we have presented today are correct. And a set of judges that refuse to give any credence to the claims of uh, electoral fraud that were being propagated by the Trump administration. Or, I mean, this is kind of frightening too, when you think about the actual police response on Capitol Hill on the 6th, we've held up this one hero who, who sort of led the mob away from the Senate chambers. To me, at least, I don't find much comfort in that, the idea that they were that close. I mean, that they could have, and that the senators who were there just barely got away. And you see the images of people with not just the, kind of the, the, the flags and whatnot and the insignias of white supremacy, but also the weaponry that they had available to them. Nonetheless, it's a, so there you have a police officer, election administrators, judges, they're the ones that give strength to our democracy, but they're also the ones whose motives are called into question. The expertise, their expertise has been marginalized over the last four years. And so, I mean, I think that's where, again, where I, where I would say that the things to worry about and the damage propagated by Trump is that those kinds of people and those kinds of commitments have been not just questioned, but harmed. James, do you think, like in the aftermath of an autocrat's hold on power, the followers of the autocrat, is this an opportunity for them? What, like, what does redemption look like for them? And do, does, does, does them repudiate the autocrat lead to a cleansing and therefore a recovery of a kind of a healthier politics? Or do we instead see that in the repudiation of the autocrat, you see a hardening of opinion among seg some segments of the population, right? Uh, kind of yeah, a, a doubling down. That's the danger. I mean, the Athenians, in classical Athens, they had this institution of ostracism, 
the assembly could ostracize people, but that you had to leave Athens. You know, they, you had to get out of the out of Athens for ten years. So, so, and I, I think that's actually like Peron. Once they got rid of Peron, they forced him into exile. Or you want to get him out of the country. It's difficult to leave someone in the country. It sort of festers. And if I would say there's any sort of systematic thing behind successful transitions, it's you get the person out of the country. You know, like you get. Idi Amin, they got him out of Uganda. You know, Papa Doc, they got him. You know, Baby Doc, they got Baby Doc out of Haiti. That's what does that do? Like, what is that? What is that doing for the followers of those autocrats? Does that then lead them to? Does it temper I, their fervor? Like, what is that? What is that accomplishing? You know, and maybe you're going to tell me that th- those examples don't work so well with with modern media. You know, maybe if Baby Doc had you know had Twitter or, or Facebook, you know, he could have carried on stoking, the, you know. But I think the lesson is that. These movements are very, very personalized. And if you sort of detach the autocrat from the social base and the context, they're not able to manipulate things the way they could when they were in the middle of it all. But again, that may be conditional on maybe modern technology makes it easier to stoke the flames in absentia. But, but, but it, it does seem to be a, something of a stylized fact. And yet Trump getting kicked off of Twitter, I don't know, felt pretty quickly a bit calmer, no? And maybe that was just, uh, we were given a little bit of room to breathe, but. Yeah, I would say there's huge incentives to replace Twitter with something else. He'll, he'll, find, sure. he'll find a way of communicating. He, he may not, find, you know, it, it, he'll find a way of communicating with his base very easily. The question is, can he do this in a, in a broader way? And that, that, you know, that remains to be seen. But I would guess the answer is yes. It's huge incentives. There's huge yeah. incentives, commercial incentives to create such a vehicle. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago podcast network. So how do we think about this going forward? What does this mean for Biden and Harris? Yeah, James, so like if you, I mean, seeing what you see and and what lessons you can draw from abroad, like what does a constructive response look like to this threat? Well, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I was thinking about these Biden's initial policy initiatives. Is uh, the commitment I made that we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord uh, as, of, uh, as of today which apparently Ted Cruz believes is uh, sort of there to benefit Parisian citizens uh, from Twitter. I know it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting interpretation of the Paris Agreement. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and normalizing international, rela- you know, allowing people to come from Sudan and Somalia and these, you know, Muslim countries that, that President Trump vilified and trying to find a path to citizenship for many illegal immigrants in the country. And, and I think it's an interesting balance that now is the time to, set, to sort of emphasize principle. I ran for president because I believe we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. And the simple truth is our soul will be troubled as long as systemic racism is allowed to persist. Like we've had four years of throwing principle to the wind. Let's establish some principles and, and talk about rights. Today, I'll be shortly signing an, a, a, an additional package of executive actions to continue this vital work. I appreciate that, but it's a fine line because at the same time, none of those policies are sort of reaching out 
to the Trumpistas, you know, like, the, the, you know, first, as political scientists, we might say, well, what Biden should really focus on is figuring out how to reach out to these people who are so disillusioned about the state of the country and try to mend some of these divisions. But then he, he, he immediately adopts a sort of policy suite, which seems to almost sort of antagonize these people as opposed to reaching out to them or placating them. So I, I found that interesting. Yeah. So if you have his ear, what do you tell him? Like, like you can, on the one hand, do you go small? Do you go big? Do you say, look, what we need to do is act in principled ways, or we need to, in this, in the, in the service of building the unity that you say is so important, we need to kind of accommodate a range of views. I mean, I wonder whether the solution to this problem is not uh, speaking as a former colleague of Bob Putnam at Harvard. In Bob's book, Bowling Alone, he traces the problems in the United States to this kind of eroding associational life, you know. And, and you know, this is something which has only accelerated since he wrote that with the rise of uh, Facebook, <laughs> you know, social media and COVID. I mean, society gets more fragmented, people are more isolated. You know, his emphasis was, we need non-political spaces or how to rebuild society, how to empathize. You know, I was very struck a few years ago by reading one of Studs Terkel's book about this, where he, he tells a lot of stories about reconciliation in the South, in some sense, you know, between black and white people. And that's, it doesn't look like a policy, but you do something which will make it happen. You create opportunities or you create spaces or you create contexts where it could happen. That seems to me to be an interesting way to maybe combine principles that you believe in with something which is maybe going to bring people together. And, you know, I think maybe it's difficult to do that with tax policy or health care or because these issues have become so polarizing. So this is a feature of your, I don't know, you don't need Bob Putnam to make this argument. It's in, <laughs> it's in, it's in your most recent book, no, that what you need are effective, capable, well-functioning institutions on the one hand, but you also need a vibrant civil society. And therein lies the narrow corridor and how you get and secure not just liberty, if I can abstract beyond your book, but to a healthy democracy. When we think about repairing the damage of Trump's populist reign, wouldn't the Robinsonian lesson be that we need to at once enliven the, the civic space at the same time we revisit our institutions and ensure that they can act in ways that are effective to address the harms and anxieties that people feel. I, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I thought you were going to say de Tocqueville, not not the narrow corridor. No, Robinsonian. <laughs> but 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 yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's also it's easier said than done as well. You know, so so one needs concrete, you know, actionable things that you can do to create these spaces. And you know, one of the things that one of the things about the United States is that the United States is very good as a as a country at doing things like that. You know, think of even the Tea Party, you know, which is not, probably not exactly what I have in mind at the moment. But again, you know, it, it's, it's, it's society organizing, you know, and, and mobilizing. And in some sense, the government, you know, Biden, President Biden needs to encourage that without looking like he's encouraging it. Because, because if you look like you're encouraging it, then you can kind of, you risk tarnishing it, it seems to me. And, and so how do you, how does one do that? I, I, I don't know. That seems like an interesting discussion to me. It's what I constantly think about when you try to raise children, right? Like, how do you get the idea that going outside in the middle of a pandemic and going for a walk would be a good idea? 
into their head without them thinking that it's your idea, because then that will spoil it immediately. Hmm. I mean, one of the things which was a sort of Achilles heel, you could say, of Trump's uh, populist appeal was that he was also very anti-state. You know, he sort of hates the government. And, you know, look at the disorganization of, of the vaccine rollout. You know, he just couldn't bear to kind of strengthen the capacity of the state, you know, in a context where it was desperately needed. And in some sense, what most of these populists do is they, use, they leverage the state. They create jobs, they create employment, they use the power of the state in a more discretionary way. And that, you know, that might be good too. You know, that, I think it's okay to do that. You know, there, there are genuine problems here that people are concerned about. And Biden isn't, he's not kind of hum, hamstrung by, by antipathy to using the power of the state to actually achieve stuff. And so he actually has an advantage over Trump in delivering to people, it seems to me. And the pandemic requires as much. I mean, that's, yeah. but there's this other layer of the challenge that he faces, no? Which has to do with kind of, accountability for the harms and maybe the illegality of actions taken under Trump. So how can reconciliation be achieved in the U.S. civil society in the wake of the January 6th events? I mean, what he wants to, I mean, Biden and Harris want to move forward and are thinking, how do we meet the challenges? Um, and there's multiple layers of how to do that. But he doesn't have the luxury, or does he, or, or should he insist upon doing that? Or does he not have the luxury of just sort of ignoring what just happened? We, there's going to be, a, you know, a, a Senate trial and there's going to be ongoing investigations. And should that be part of his project as well? I, I don't think you can escape that. I think you have to enforce the law here. For me, as a, as a, as a foreigner, as an Englishman, one of the most bizarre circuses in, in American political life is the presidential pardon. Trump just engaged in an orgy of patronage and favoritism, you know, with the, under the full force of the Constitution. It's just absolutely bizarre, the whole thing. So there he is flouting legal decisions, you know, made with due process and evidence and everything, and just kind of wave my hand and I can just overthrow, you know, I can overturn. So I think you know, application of the rule of law here is a good thing. What happened was outrageous and they should be prosecuted, it seems to me, and put in prison. And Trump was running on a law and order agenda, for heaven's sake. Prosecuting them will, will drive home what hypocrisy that was. I agree with that completely. Although, I, you know, I don't think it's, it's not Joe Biden's job to stand up and say, prosecute these particular political enemies of mine. <laughs> it's his job to hire competent prosecutors and bureaucrats who are going to uphold the law. I think that will be a very important part of Anthony, what, what, like, when you think about the, the, the trial in the Senate, uh -huh. you know, it's coming. Uh -huh. Is this something which, when we think about productively moving forward, is this something that should be sort of attended to quickly, put aside, it was basically a mistake to move on, or is it something that should be held up and, um, and it's an opportunity for the Republican Party to reclaim you know, a more principled set of positions and to drive out Trump and Trumpism from within its ranks? I think it is an opportunity for the Republican Party, actually. It's a great opportunity for them um, in the sense that if they come out and show some principles and if a bunch of Republicans vote to convict Trump, they'll regain a lot of the credit they lost over the, over the past four years without paying any real costs. I don't, think, I don't think it hurts them at all. Trump's already gone. They're not losing their president. So yes, it's a bit of an opportunity for the Republicans. I don't know if they're going to take that opportunity or not. As far as, you know, what's the level of priority and the level of attention that it should get, I think... You know, the senators have an obligation to conduct the trial and to conduct a fair trial and to and to hear the evidence and to hear the arguments. And I think that's an important thing for the country to move forward is to, to, to realize that 
there, there, there is accountability in our system and the president is not above the law. And if the senators decide to convict, and if they have good reasons for doing so, I think that will be a good thing for the country to see that. So what are we at now? We're at the 25-hour mark of a Biden presidency. <laughs> do, you, do you guys come away feeling a little more hopeful, a little sort of way too soon to say, like, where do you come out in terms of thinking about the possibilities of, if not renewal, then at least some correction to the damage wrought to our democracy um, under under the Trump presidency? Anthony, why don't you go first? I'm certainly hopeful about a Biden presidency. You know, obviously it's, it's way too early to say what, you know, exactly what Biden is going to do, but I think he's moderate, who has had success working with Republicans in the past. You know, one thing we haven't, we didn't talk about entire, at all this session is really you know, within the Democratic Party, what the heck is going on there? And why did the Democratic Party, even though they won the presidency in the House and the Senate, barely, right? They barely won the presidency. They barely won the Senate by, you know, by drawing an inside straight, as somebody wrote on Facebook, which is, I think, an apt, apt analogy, despite the fact that we had an extremely unpopular president who was impeached twice. There was a global, you know, we, we could talk all about that, but the Democratic Party is not that popular right now. And I think, so Biden is going to, has his work cut out for him. And I think how he handles these first, you know, these first few months are going to either going to matter a lot for just the just the, the future of our country and the future of our democracy. But I'm hopeful. You know, he seems like a very serious and principled person. I'm a little bit anxious that he's too inside the box. You know, he's been so involved in this process in D.C. with Obama and, and, and he doesn't really get how big the problems are and the nature of the risks. So but I think, Anthony, I totally agree with that, which is you know, given what's gone on in the last four years, how narrow the victory was is is sort of, I mean, had it not been for COVID, you know, we'd be we'd be mulling over the Trump re-election, you know, it seems to me. And, you know, not just that, but but you know, people who got organized in Georgia and got got people out to vote. And, you know, like a lot there was a lot of little things that helped as well that were important. But but I I sort of feel it's rather astonishing. You know, and that makes me worried because it makes me think that. The Democrats don't really get it, you know. I, I would just simply pile on in two ways by pointing to, Anthony, you, you suggested that the Republican Party has an opportunity to kind of cleanse itself. In the immediate aftermath of you know, the January 6th assault, 139 Republicans nonetheless in the House saw fit to reiterate the false claims and to lay their bets back down on the lies about the election. Um, you see all of 10 Republicans voting for impeachment in the House. And, uh, and there goes my dog. And then you see the structural conditions for the rise of populism very much remaining in place. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.